Let's pray. Uh, our God, we do pray for this developing situation. Um, we pray for wisdom. We pray for cool heads. Uh, we pray for insight into um, just what's going on. Uh, we do ask, Father, that you might have mercy and uh, that um, we might not see the kind of scenarios that some people are talking about in terms of hospitals being overrun and um, and people, lots of people getting really sick all at once. We ask that you might um, yeah, give us grace to... Um, uh, to do what we can in the light of that as well. Uh, help us to trust you and to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and uh, to love one another well as you have loved us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to pray again for us uh, as we come to hear God's word read and then preached. Father, as we come to your precious word today, um, we pray that you would give us ears to hear uh, what you have for us, um, uh, that we would um, come to um, honour you and glorify you in all we do, say and think. Um, uh, We thank you for your precious word and for your spirit who um, uh, applies it to our hearts and transforms us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jill. Jesus then left that place. Capernaum, and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Well, uh, Mark's gospel has been great, hasn't it? Uh, Journeying through uh, the book of Mark, his account of the life of Jesus. I hope you found it really helpful as we've worked through that first half of Mark. Uh, You get this wonderful picture, don't you, of the incredible authority and power and majesty of Jesus. Uh, And at the same time, as we looked at a few weeks ago, his incredible grace and kindness is mercy to those who come to him in faith Um, he came for the sick for sinners he came to cleanse unclean hearts to set people free to bring them into his wonderful and life-giving kingdom Uh, last week um, we had that wonderful moment of the the climax of the gospel and Shannon preached for us Uh, so well last week thinking uh, looking at chapter 8 of Mark's gospel seeing who Jesus is Uh, Seeing Jesus as the Messiah, God's great eternal king over his kingdom, um, uh, who would bring in God's kingdom. And he was the kind of, the twist last week, 
He was going to be the Messiah who would bring in God's kingdom, not uh, through kind of earthly means, not through force as everyone expected, but through the unexpected way of the cross, uh, through his self-giving for the, for the sin of his people. So that's that um, first half of Mark's Gospel. It's been really um, wonderful to get that image of Jesus. There's a bit of a shift from that point in chapter 8. Uh, Jesus has told his disciples he's going to die and rise again, and it's like the whole kind of um, book shifts there and starts to, re- to, to really focus in on that end point, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, there's this movement towards Jerusalem uh, where, he, where Jesus would fulfill this mission. There's a kind of physical shift in the, in the narrative. Um, uh, we um, haven't looked at this on Sunday. Um, many of us have read it in our own readings, though. In chapter 9, Jesus, uh, after last week's passage, Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples in the transfiguration Uh, His death is not a sign that he is not powerful or glorious. It is the outworking of his great selfless love, which is all the more amazing when you see his matchless glory. And the disciples got a glimpse of that on the mountain. Um, Then uh, the rest of chapter 9, he's he's travelling through Galilee, which is up the north of Israel. Uh, Chapter 10, he keeps travelling south, and we're told he enters into the region of Judah, or Judea, sorry, the, the region of Israel that Jerusalem is in. So you get this sense of movement towards Jerusalem. He has his sights set on the cross. Uh, but on, on the way, on the journey to Jerusalem, he keeps doing amazing things. Uh, he keeps teaching amazing things. He c- keeps teaching his followers what it means to be part of his kingdom. Uh, we're looking today at Jesus teaching on what is, for many of us, a really personal and painful issue. Um, the, the very um, yeah, personal issue of the breakdown and ending of a marriage in divorce. Uh, it's really important to see this teaching of Jesus, this passage, in the context of what has come before and what comes after, actually. Uh, it may be today that you've come with some adrenaline and pain and hurt, and I just want to say thank you for coming um, uh, I imagine that would not, was not an easy thing to do, knowing what we'd be talking about. Uh, Jesus is the great healer. He's the one who is filled with compassion and mercy, who will never turn away those who come to him in faith. Uh, this passage, uh, uh, just cast your eye down to verse 2 if you've got your Bibles open. Uh, the, the context of this passage is a hostile question from the Pharisees against Jesus. Uh, you can see in verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him. That's really important to notice right up front. Jesus is not giving pastoral advice to, to someone grappling with the fallout of relationship break, breakup. He is responding here to people who are t- trying to test him, who are trying to trap him. How would Jesus relate to someone who is broken and hurting in this area? We don't actually have to guess that the answer to that question. You might be familiar with the story in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well. Uh, and he knows that she has had five husbands, and the man she's currently living with she's not married to. Uh, I really encourage you to read that chapter, actually. Um, read through John chapter 4. It gives a wonderful insight into how Jesus relates to 
uh, this woman in this situation, he does not condemn her. Uh, he doesn't excuse her past, but he welcomes her. He reveals himself to her, and he offers her the living water that only he can provide. So that may be how you're approaching this morning. Uh, it, it may also be, on the other hand, that there is genuine sin in your life here that you have not been honest about. And what I want to say to you, if that's you, is that Jesus says back in Mark 3 that people can be forgiven of all of their sins. And the key is not to run away from Jesus, but to run to him, to bring your burden into the light of the gospel, uh, to confess it and repent and seek to do whatever you can to repair any damage and to move forward asking God to change you and grow you in his grace, in his grip. The problem is never our past sin. That is never a barrier with God if you come to him in repentance and faith. If it was, none of us would have any hope. The problem is never our past sin. The problem, as we'll see today, is our present hardness of heart. Um, so, friends, don't harden your heart today. Be soft soil for God's good word and not stony ground. It's a bit of a longer introduction to this because I think we might need it. Um, it may also be, on the other hand, you may be feeling a little bit of anger uh, and rejection of Jesus' words here <coughs> uh, as we look through. And if that's you, I want to remind you and urge you to remember the, who we have seen Jesus to be in Mark's Gospel. He is the one who has authority to teach. We... Um, we sometimes try to separate God's grace from his truth. We like Jesus the healer and saviour. We can be less comfortable with Jesus the Lord and master, especially when his way cuts against my own. Uh, but he is the one who is full of both grace and truth. And in his grace... He gives his truth. His truth is an expression of his goodness and his grace. It's not contrary to it or something to apologize in the light of it. It may be, on the other hand, fourth sort of possibility. There are others, but it may be that you are relatively untouched by this issue. Well, that is God's grace to you and thank him for it. Uh, but make sure there is no place for judgmentalism in your heart here. Uh, there's another account in John's Gospel, you might know it, uh, John chapter 8, uh, with uh, a woman who has been caught in adultery. And people go to stone her. And you know the, the, um, the, the passage? Look it up if you don't. So we, we spoke on this a number of years ago, so you could listen to that if you like. Jesus says uh, these really powerful and important words he says let the one without sin cast the first stone uh, and then he calls this woman to a transformed life to go and sin no more uh, friends there's no place for throwing stones here we are all sinful and broken 
and come to God only through his incredible grace. We are a community formed by the gospel of grace and truth, which means we relate in both grace and truth. Not condemning or gossiping or speaking harshly, but also at the same time calling each other in humility to follow our Lord, to receive his word with soft hearts, to grow in holiness, to live more and more his way and not ours. So that's the tone that we want as we listen to our Lord in Mark chapter 10. We do that. Uh, Helpful to have Bibles open. It'll be up on the screen too. As I said, you can see there there's a threatening situation at at the uh, opening of this chapter. Uh, The Pharisees are testing Jesus. There's a threat from another reason as well, though. Um, uh, It's a a threat that sort of, it may not be apparent at first, uh, but it's about the region that Jesus has come into, this region of Judea. Uh, Judea was a region that, that was controlled by a guy called Herod Antipas. Um, Now, Herod has appeared before in Mark's Gospel. Again, we uh, didn't look at that here on Sundays, but perhaps uh, uh, if you've read through Mark up to this point, uh, you might remember in chapter 6, reading about this confrontation between Herod and John the Baptist. Um, Back in chapter 6, we're told that John the Baptist uh, was imprisoned and eventually decapitated because he had told Herod that his marriage was not lawful. Uh, was not right. Uh, Herod had married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, um, and it seems like she had divorced Philip and uh, to marry Herod. And according to John, this was not right. It was an unlawful remarriage, and he spoke against it. And so that's in the background here. The Pharisees are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus uh, and asking a public question about divorce in Herod's country... Uh, where not too long ago John the Baptist has been beheaded, uh, maybe might just be the way that they can go about doing that. Uh, so there's a kind of yeah dark backdrop to what's going on here. But then you get to their actual question at the end of verse two. Uh, this is their test for Jesus: Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus replies in verse 3, what did Moses command you? He goes back to their scriptures. Uh, And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, they were were right. Uh, Moses did do that. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 24. More on that later. But you notice Jesus asks, what did Moses... He asks about a command. He's asking, what was the positive intention for marriage in God's law given through Moses? And the Pharisees respond by talking about what Moses permitted. Um, Deuteronomy 24, as I mentioned does permit and regulate divorce and remarriage on the grounds of uh, what's called their something indecent. And um, we actually, we know from, uh, there are debates happening at the same time as Jesus is saying this. There are debates around the, in the Jewish world uh, about, about that um, passage. Uh, there were two main schools of thought that were, that were going around and that would have been common knowledge 
in this time. Uh, Both held that only a man could initiate this, uh, but one school argued that something indecent in Deuteronomy 24 meant adultery and adultery only. Uh, Another school argued, no, something indecent can basically mean whatever you want, Uh, any cause, anything. And so there's, um, the, uh, you um, hear about cases of people being uh, divorced for tri- such trivial things as cooking a bad meal. Um, so you get, you, there's, you get this um, kind of uh, thing going on in the, in the situation of the time. There's this, there's this current kind of um, debate happening. No one really um, uh, thought that uh, divorce was unlawful according to Moses. They were debating about the, the right reasons for it. Uh, and uh, in fact, if you read Matthew's account of the same conversation, so Matthew um, writes a fuller account. Mark's often a bit more summarised, a bit more clipped. Uh, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 19, he records the Pharisees' question as, in 19 verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Um, so that's what they're, they're getting at. They're, uh, they're, they're asking about this, in what circumstances could this happen? That's in the background here. <coughs> uh, they're thinking, what does this something indecent mean in Moses' law? And how far can we sort of push the rule? And I just think Jesus' reply is masterful here. Um, Verse 5 of Mark chapter 10. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Um, Moses never commanded. Remember, Jesus asks about what does Moses command? Moses never commanded a husband to divorce. Uh, He does permit it under some circumstances, but not this kind of for any and every reason. Um, kind of divorce that, uh, well, is probably fairly familiar to us today, right? It's, a, they're actually, it's actually the same, a very similar context that we're in to what Jesus was in in that, in that society. Divorce is always the sad result uh, of hardness of heart, of human sin. Uh, and despite our sin, God is gracious, especially for women, actually. Um, there was no social security at the time, and a lot of the kind of regulation around this, well, there's not, there's not a lot, but the regulation around this in the Old Testament um, uh, seems designed to particularly protect vulnerable women who are caught up in this. Um, uh, and so if uh, someone without social security is sort of put away by their husband, um, but they're unable to get divorced, they're left in an extremely vulnerable position. Um, if they're enabled to divorce and remarry, um, that enables them to find security again. And the purpose wasn't... That, but the purpose was never to encourage divorce. Um, it was to limit the damage of hard-heartedness, of, sin, of human sin. It was to limit the damage... But Jesus doesn't want these Pharisees to just think about what they can get away with according to the letter of the law. You see what they're doing? They're kind of looking for loopholes. And what he does next, what he does now is to bring them back to God's good intention, God's good design for marriage. 
And so in verse six, verse six he says, <clears throat> uh, or verse five, it was because of your hardness, your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning, the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. I'll pause there. This is a sidebar. But do you notice here um, that according to Jesus, gender is real and good? Uh, it's not a social construct that can be abandoned or added to. It's not an oppressive patriarchal institution. Uh, as much as these things have been misused because of hardness of heart and human sin, gender at its heart is a reality that is given by a good and loving God. Uh, Jesus clearly upholds the Bible's teaching that at the beginning, God's good design for humanity is as male and female. And that the basic social unit for people in God's creation is the complementary pairing of one male and one female in marriage. That's a bit of a complex sentence. I'll read it again. <laughs> the basic social unit for, God's pe for people in God's creation is this complementary pairing of a male and a female in marriage. <clears throat> uh, and so, just uh, not out of any desire to cause more pain or anything like that, but just to be clear, Jesus, I think it's clear, would not recognise the redefinition of marriage that our society has adopted as a legitimate expression of God's good design. Um, he goes on in verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So, friends... You see what Jesus is doing here? Instead of looking for loopholes, he wants to focus on God's intention, on God's good design. And that is something that is beautiful and good, uh, this idea of one flesh. Now, it, this is not just a kind of begrudging faithfulness. Sometimes we can hold that up as a value. Just stick it out together. Uh, there is a rightness to that in terms of uh, faithfulness being a good and right. Uh, I mean, it's at the heart of God. But the, picture, the Bible's picture of marriage is actually much more than just sticking it out. It is this idea of two becoming one flesh. Um, that is talking about sex on the one hand. Sex is given by God for marriage and for marriage alone. But one flesh is more than that. Uh, in, in Genesis, if you go back and, and look at the, uh, the account in Genesis, this one flesh union that God creates has a purpose. Uh, the man and the woman are joined together so that they might together serve God in, at, in, in, in uh, Genesis 2, so that they might together work in the garden, uh, work, engage in the work that God had called them to. Uh, this gets picked up and taken to a new level in the New Testament. There's, uh, you may be familiar, hopefully, uh, with uh, the, the wonderful picture that 
Paul paint, the Apostle Paul paints in Ephesians chapter 5 of marriage as this incredible picture of the gospel. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to reflect the love God has for his people and his people have for God. Husbands are meant to reflect Jesus, wives to reflect his people, the church. Marriage is a sign that points away from the couple and towards Jesus, towards the gospel. And so the purpose of marriage is not to solve loneliness. God has given the wonderful gift of friendship for that. Uh, It's not so that you can have kids. It's not so that you can pursue your dreams. Those are all included within marriage, but at its heart, the deep, overarching purpose of marriage is to reflect the wonderful gospel to the world. As in this one flesh union, you join together in the service of God. Okay, so Jesus raises their eyes to the wonderful good intention of God for marriage. He paints the ideal here. The reality is our own hearts, right? Our own hard hearts. God does allow for divorce. We'll come back to that in a moment. But it's not his purpose. Um, Every divorce breaks something that God has joined. And so Jesus gives this strong word to these Pharisees in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. See what he's trying to get the Pharisees? He, he wants them to stop looking for loopholes and instead to, to see God's wonderful design, his good design. And if once you do that, it gives you a totally different perspective. The question is not the Pharisees' question of what boxes do I need to check off in order to legally divorce my spouse? The question becomes... How can I pursue God's good design in my marriage? How can I pursue God's good design in my marriage? If that's your framework, then Jesus' words here will make total sense. Now, as I said a couple of times, there are, the Bible does talk about exceptions to this, where one party has so grievously broken the marriage covenant, uh, and they're important, but they mustn't lessen the force of what Jesus is saying here. And there's a good reason for this strong word. Remember, Jesus not only has authority to teach, he's our good and gracious and loving Lord, and he has a good purpose in this. Jesus wants, especially once we see the way that marriage is a reflection of the gospel, Jesus wants us to learn what his faithful love to us looks like. Marriage is a great school of discipleship and learning the deep, self-giving, faithful love that Jesus has for you. That doesn't happen on a wedding day. It happens at a graveside. And to get there, To get there, not just having stuck it out, but to get there as one flesh, as lifetime partners in God's service, you will need the security of God's good, lifelong design for your marriage as your bedrock. 
but you also may need a warning. And that's what the last couple of verses, the most difficult verses in this passage, give us. Uh, The disciples later on asked Jesus about this. Uh, And he answers in verse 11, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another another woman uh, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. To treat marriage and divorce like these Pharisees are seeking to do, remember the context, this hostile context, looking for loopholes, to treat marriage and divorce like they're seeking to do, kind of casually, legalistically, uh, this attitude of easy divorce and remarriage, is equivalent in Jesus' eyes to the sin of adultery. It's to sin grievously against the spouse that you are leaving. And friends, maybe that's the word you need to hear today. Maybe you're thinking about doing that. Don't go down that path. Fight for your marriage. Work on growing together as partners, as lovers, as friends. And put your hand up for help. Don't be too proud not to do that. Uh, That would be the most courageous thing you could do. And can I... This is just me, so take it at whatever level you want, but can I encourage men to take a lead, to lead the way in that? I, I say that because I quite often... It's not uncommon for me to hear of unwilling husbands dragged along to marriage counselling. That should not be the case. Men, if things are not going well, take responsibility. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, seeking to present her as holy and blameless. Bring your pride to the cross. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that in due time he may lift you up. And wives, if I may um, encourage you, if your husband takes that initiative, receive that as his loving care for you. Soften your heart to him. Respect him. Um, There's a very practical question, I think, or issue that um, Paul addresses in Ephesians 5. He does talk to husbands and wives in different ways. Um, And flowing out of what he says there in Ephesians 5, I've had this uh, sort of impressed to me as a really helpful question to ask each other. And perhaps this could be a practical thing for those who are married here today to do when you get home today. Perhaps this would be helpful for you if, think about it, and if so, then I'd encourage you to do it. Husbands, ask your wife, do you feel loved like this by me? Do you feel loved like Jesus loves the church? Wives, ask your husbands, do you feel respected by me? And that, 
will open up some really, I hope, healthy and good conversations for those of us who are married. There's a lot at stake here, friends. Sin has consequences, real-life consequences, multi-generational consequences, social and spiritual. And so Jesus' basic answer to these hard-hearted Pharisees who are coming to trap him is... Pursue God's good design for your marriage. To casually divorce and remarry is to break what God has joined. It is to sin against your spouse. Well, I mentioned that perhaps you're someone who might see this in yourself, either currently, in which case you need to take action, or in your past. What do you do? Well... You do whatever you do when you see sin in your life. You repent. You turn from your sin. You turn to your Saviour who welcomes you with open arms and gives you his grace and his truth and his spirit to move forward, resting in him, trusting in him. There's more to say. There's more to say, friends. These, uh, there, are, there are circumstances here in Mark... Uh, that Mark's account does not include, but that the Bible does talk about. And I think the reason for that is that the context, this hostile question that these Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus about and the questions floating around at the time about easy divorce and remarriage. What you can see in your hand, hand out there is I just... Um, I wasn't sure if we'd have time to get through everything. We may not. <laughs> Uh, but I wanted to give you as full an account as I could as of what I understand to be the whole Bible's witness about this issue. Um, uh, this isn't just me. Uh, I'm uh, pretty heavily reliant on uh, uh, Dr. John Woodhouse, who was the principal of Moore College when I studied there, and a paper he's written. Uh, if you Google that, you can find that, and perhaps I'll write a link to that in the, uh, in the email this week. Really helpful paper, uh, uh, sensitively, biblically, looking through this issue. Um, it's an issue that good-hearted, Bible-loving Christians can and do come to different opinions about as well, so I just want to put that out there. There are issues here, there's uh, points here that um, yeah, others who I deeply respect would disagree with. Um, I just thought to sort of finish, you know, to finish off our time together, I might just run, I'm going to run through these, how many points have we got? Nine? We'll try and make it quick. Um, and I've already covered numbers of them, so we'll, we'll skim through some. Uh, friends, outside the garden, Jesus points back to Genesis 2, before the fall, um, paints the ideal picture of marriage. Outside the garden, all marriages are marred by sin, and will involve a normal rhythm of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. That's just par for the course. That's a baseline of human marriages outside the garden. Um, second, while never letting go of good, God's good design and his general prohibition of divorce, the Bible teaches that in our fallen world, circumstances can arise in which divorce is permitted by God. I mentioned already the um, Matthew's version of this same incident. 
uh, when he talks about, um, when, when Jesus talks about it, he includes an exception, um, uh, except for sexual immorality, uh, to what he's saying here. That's a, um, it's a pretty broad term. Uh, it's, a, it's a word called, uh, that's porneia in the original language. It's a broad term. It includes adultery, but it's broader than that. Um, obviously, the word porneia comes across in our word pornography, uh, which is a scourge in modern society and in churches too. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that if your spouse is looking at pornography, um, that's, you, you, you can divorce them at that point. But I, what I do want to raise is the seriousness of that sin. If you're married, you're breaking covenant promises. Jesus says, you look lustfully at a woman in your heart, you commit adultery with them. You're committing adultery um, in your heart. And that will be a blockage to your marriage of pursuing God's good design for your marriage. It will be a, a blockage. It will, it will not enable you to flourish as Jesus wants you to in your marriage. Um, but Jesus does include sexual immorality, which um, as uh, one of these circumstances in which divorce is permitted by God... Uh, sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, talks about the abandonment of one spouse, uh, a believing spouse being... The particular situation Paul's talking about is a believing spouse being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Um, and it's, I think it's quite clear in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that that person is not bound uh, they, they are free from the obligations of that marriage. Are there others? Are there other circumstances? And at this point, um, uh, uh, the, I, I think the kind of... Uh, I, I'm, I'm very confident that those first two are taught directly by God in his word. At this point, uh, there's a little bit of an... I just want you to notice the authority drop. I don't have a verse for this. Um, but it's, I'm convinced, actually, that those two are not intended to be an exhaustive law. For one thing, that they, they don't mention each other. That's an interesting thought. Uh, they're describing situations in which one party has so massively broken their marriage vows that they have, in a sense, already divorced their spouse. The formal divorce in these cases, is really just a recognition that the marriage has already, has already been broken, has already been destroyed by the serious sin of one party. And I would absolutely include abuse here. Um, if your spouse is abusing you, um, if there is a dynamic of hunter and hunted in a marriage, not only do you need to get safe, and please do that. Speak to me. But I would argue in their abuse, they have abandoned you, actually. And already 
abandoned the marriage. Now, as I say, I don't have a, a verse for that. But I think it lines up with the teaching of the Bible well. Point three. Divorce in these circumstances is not commanded. And where there is genuine repentance, forgiveness and reconciliation is the ideal. For someone who believes God's good design for marriage, that will be your heart. So someone who has been forgiven more than you can ever know by, the, by God in the gospel. That will be your desire. However, repentance is not, I'm really sorry, don't tell anyone, only to repeat it all again a month later. Repentance is genuine grief at sin, an open acknowledgement of it, a commitment to tangible change, a new direction. So friends, if someone is preventing you from sharing something of this magnitude with a trusted friend or with a pastor, that's not repentance. I need to say that. Point four, divorce ends a marriage. Therefore, a divorced, divorced person is in principle free to marry another. I think it's fairly clear that that was the assumption through the Old Testament in how it deals with these issues. Uh, it's, it's also clear that it was assumed by everyone in Jesus' time, so reading this in its context. There's more to say there. Perhaps you want to come back to me on that one. We need to keep going. Point five. This provision can be abused and marriages can be ended which should not be. And again, if, if our heart is for Jesus' heart, um, then we will see that as a tragic thing. I think uh, that's probably what's in view with Jesus' strong condemnation in verses 10, uh, 11 and 12 of Mark 10. This casual... Um, abuse of God's provision. However, point six, where someone tragically and regrettably has legitimate grounds for divorce, they do not sin in making use of that provision, nor in remarrying. And perhaps that's something that you need to hear today and be encouraged in. Well, friend, I, um, friends, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. There's still lots of questions. Each situation, in my experience, is unbelievably complex and unique. Uh, and I'm sure I have not done justice to this topic today. I want to end, though, by pointing us all, all of us, actually, towards this great reality that marriages are a sign of. These last few points. Point seven. 
Human marriages are signs pointing towards the beautiful gospel of Jesus, the marriage of the king with his bride, the church. Point eight. And therefore, marriage is a good gift, but a terrible idol. While marriage shows the shape of the gospel, singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. Why I include that is because the the Christian gospel uniquely upholds, I think uniquely actually, upholds the fullness and dignity of the single life. There There is lots of idolatry of marriage in our culture and in churches. Um, seeing it as the answer to all problems. I hear some people talk like that. There's also lots of degrading of singleness in our culture and tragically also in churches uh, that can communicate implicitly often that to be single is to be some way deficient. Neither of those are true. Marriage will not complete you. We have all we need in Jesus and in the family of his church and in the security that he gives, we can live in the situation God has placed us in Uh, from today onwards, resting in him, trusting in him, going forward from today in his strength, in his grace, in his forgiveness. And so point nine, in Christ, wherever you have come from, wherever you're, however you're approaching this topic, take this away today. In Christ, there is overflowing healing, peace, forgiveness, the power to repent and the eternal satisfaction of every good desire. I pray for us. Our Lord, we've um, looked at such a raw topic for so many of us. Uh, God, we ask for your help, your wisdom, your guidance. We thank you for the precious gift of your word and we pray today that you might enable us to hear this word well. Lord, for those of us whose marriages are just struggling, give us, I pray this will just be the boost that we need to um, work on them. Uh, Please protect those who need protection. Uh, Please keep us from idolatry. Help us to know our identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. And help us to live out our relationships here in this earth in a way that pleases you and honours honors your good design for us. And that points people to Jesus. Thank you that we can do that no matter what our situation is. And uh, we pray that your great mercy and help for us now in Jesus' name. Amen.